when she smiles. And now and then, on the wind, came a breath from virgin jungles, laden with unfamiliar odors, mysterious and menacing. It is on such mornings that Papua whispers to you of her immemorial ancientness and of her power. And, as every white man must, I fought against her spell. While I struggled, I saw a tall figure striding down the pier. A Kappa Kappa boy followed swinging a new valise. There was something familiar about the tall man. As he reached the gangplank, he looked up straight into my eyes, stared for a moment, then waved his hand. And now I knew him. It was Dr. David Throckmorton. Throck he was to me always, one of my oldest friends, and, as well, a mind of the first water, whose power and achievements were for me a constant inspiration as they were, I know, for scores other. Coincidentally with my recognition came a shock of surprise, definitely unpleasant. It was Throckmorton, but about him was something disturbingly unlike the man I had known long so well, and to whom and to whose little party I had bidden farewell less than a month before I myself had sailed for these seas. He had married only a few weeks before Edith, the daughter of Professor William Fraser, younger by at least a decade than he, but at one with him in his ideals, and as much in love, if it were possible, as Throckmorton. By virtue of her father's training, a wonderful assistant. By virtue of her own sweet, sound heart, a, uh, I use the word in its olden sense, lover. With his equally youthful associate, Dr. Charles Stanton, and a Swedish woman, Thora Halverson, who had been Edith Throckmorton's nurse from babyhood, they had set forth for the Nan Matal, that extraordinary group of island ruins clustered along the eastern shore of Ponape in the Carolines. I knew that he had planned to spend at least a year among these ruins, not only of Ponape, but of Lidi, twin centers of a colossal riddle of humanity, a weird flower of civilization that blossomed ages before the seeds of Egypt were sown, of whose arts we know little enough, and of whose science nothing. He had carried with him unusually complete equipment for the work he had expected to do, and which, he hoped, would be his monument. What, then, had brought Throckmorton to Port Moresby, and what was that change I had sensed in him? Hurrying down to the lower deck, I found him with the purser. As I spoke, he turned, thrust out to me an eager hand, and then I saw what was that difference that had so moved me. He knew, of course, by my silence and involuntary shrinking, the shock of my closer look had given me. My eyes filled. He turned brusquely from the purser, hesitated, then hurried off to his stateroom. He looks rather queer, eh? said the purser. You know him well, sir. Seems to have given you quite a start. I made some reply and went slowly up to my chair. There I sat, composed my mind, and tried to define what it was that had shaken me so. Now it came to me. The old Throckmorton was on the eve of his venture just turned forty, lithe, erect, muscular, his controlling expression one of enthusiasm, of intellectual keenness, of, what shall I say, expectant search. 
His always questioning brain had stamped its vigor upon his face. But the Throckmorton I had seen below was one who had borne some scaring shock of mingled rapture and horror, some soul cataclysm that in its climax had remolded deep from within his face, setting on it seal of wedded ecstasy and despair, as though indeed these two had come to him hand in hand, taken possession of him, and departing, left behind, ineradicably, their linked shadows. Yes, it was that which appalled. For how could rapture and horror, heaven and hell, mix, clasp hands, kiss? Yet these were what in closest embrace lay on Throckmorton's face. Deep in thought, subconsciously with relief, I watched the shoreline sink behind.